Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. I don't think any band we featured on this show has had the financial push that The Knack had from Capitol Records, nor have they had such a dramatic fall from grace. The band received the largest signing advance ever at that time, released the number one song of 1979, and had one of the fastest selling debut singles since the Beatles' I Wanna Hold Your Hand. And then nothing. This week, we're joined by Nerf Herder's Linus of Hollywood to discuss if this was a little pretty one, or if we shouldn't have given it our time, Sharona. All right, so Linus, you picked My Sharona by The Knack. And my first question is, uh, why did you pick this song? What, what about this song made you want to talk about it? Well, basically, you know, I grew up as a metalhead, so I was like a hair hair metal kid. And I remember I was working at Subway Sandwich Shop. I used to be a sandwich artist, and I was mopping the floor, and the oldies station was on, and they played My Sharona. And I was like, man, this song rocks. You know, I, I heard the song many times when I was a kid, but I kind of never paid attention to it. It was just on the radio. But uh, it made me revisit their catalog, which I actually had never heard before. I shouldn't say revisit. It made me visit their catalog. And I bought the album Get the Knack that had My Sharona on it. And the whole album was just amazing. It was uh, super rockin', but also very Beatles-influenced. A lot of their songs are very Beatles-influenced. My Sharona kind of is probably their least Beatles-influenced song. It's right. more about the riff than the than the melody but but yeah basically that just sucked me in and then i ended up buying all the rest of their albums and kind of being blown away by how amazing they are so you're a legitimate the knack fan you know i have always known my sharona obviously but it took getting prepared for this episode for me to dive in a little bit first of all this song was the number one song of 1979 Yes. It was the overall Billboard number one song, which is pretty wild. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize, I guess I hear the, you know, in what I've dug into with them, I, I hear the Beatles influence, I, I suppose. And, uh, but I, <laughs> when I was researching this, I thought it was funny though, because this is a good song. I la- always like this song. It's obviously catchy, but it's also like kind of funny. Like that, just something about that is kind of sounds a little bit like silly to me. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it just reminds me of 
funny things from being a kid and and just singing things to that to me it sounds like the drummer started playing a beat do, do, da, da, do, da, and, right and the, the bass player the guitar player basically just started copying what he was doing you know like <laughs> right but what i keep picturing because you know in researching this there were 10 different labels uh, that were had a bidding war for this band i pictured that scene from back to the future they see michael j fox shredding and they're like you know oh we found that new sound i picture like that do 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 and all these record labels just going crazy like this is it this is the sound i just <laughs> i for some reason i started laughing just thinking about that but and it was the sound in 1979 it became a, a huge thing right and i guess when i started looking at like what else was popular at that time it was disco so in comparison to disco that rocked (laughs) you know so when i dig into their catalog i'm thinking a lot about their guitar tones and stuff which are very clean and uh you wouldn't think that it rocks that hard the drums do rock i'll give the drums credit on all these songs for being 1979 but the guitar tones are pretty clean and everything but yeah i mean i guess compared to disco it was pretty rocking which is what led to the knack having the billboard number one album for five consecutive weeks they sold two million copies and i think that it is almost entirely due to this song because this song is I mean, they are considered a one-hit wonder. I guess they had another song from this album. i kind of not sure which one. Good Girls Don't, I think, was yes. a single. Yes, that's that's the one. What's really funny is the album after uh, this one, it has a song called Baby Talks Dirty, and the riff on it, it almost sounds exactly like my Sharona. It goes, just it literally sounds like there was like a a focus group or a meeting or something it's like we need another song that sounds like that and (laughs) that happened with rick springfield rick springfield had that song jesse's girl and the album after that there was a song tonight or something like that the riff is basically it's basically just take the chords from jesse's girl and like flip them around and it's actually like a great song but it's just when you first hear it you're just like oh my god he's just trying to do jesse's girl again right right we did hey we did an episode about rick springfield even though as you probably know as well He's not actually a one-hit wonder. He actually had a lot of hits, but oh, yeah. Jesse's Girl is the one that like everyone remembers. So, you know, that was one of those like technicalities like, yeah, I guess it's a one-hit wonder in the mass consciousness of people's minds, but the dude actually had a lot of hits and still like rocks today. <laughs> not to get off topic, but the crazy thing about Rick Springfield is he, uh, you know, he was a teenage rock star. He he came from Australia and he was in a band called Zoot. That was like the Australian Beatles. They were gigantic in Australia and he was just a teenager. Right. So he already had that career. And then he came to America and he ended up getting signed, but put out some albums that no one cared about. And he was kind of like about to give up when he did <laughs> Jesse's Curl. He was already kind of old. He was already like 30 or something by then. But yeah, he's had a ton of hits. And I've, I've also done quite the deep dive on his material because he's another one of those guys that like has a lot of really great albums and he gets sort of a bad rap you know he was on general hospital so people sort of think <laughs> easier or whatever but his music is amazing he's a great songwriter he's got a great voice and yeah you know you don't hear him mentioned in the same breath as a lot of those huge artists and i guess he hasn't had as many songs that are like number one smash hits but yeah you know of all these episodes we've done of this rick springfield is the one where i'm like yeah he's really awesome you know yeah and, uh, i was I was happy when uh, that 
that movie came out, uh, Sound City or whatever, and they they kind of gave him the respect that he deserved in that in that movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. They, they treated him with the same dignity as Tom Petty and all the other people they were mentioning. I was like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Speaking of Tom Petty, bringing it back to my Sharona, it's always crazy to me to hear these stories about bands that just instantaneously achieve success, like within months of being a band. It's always weird. Like, you know, for someone that's been uh, trying to achieve success for decades (laughs) with music, it's always like, Oh my God, this band, the knack within two months of their live debut. So I guess, they didn't even have an album yet yeah. uh, and guest jams with musicians such as Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty and Ray Manzarek. That's when the bidding war happened, which seems like a scene from walk hard or something like he plays totally. live. And then all of a sudden there's just like this craziness, but I guess it was a different time. I guess they were really, really good. I mean that out, al- that first album that my Sharona is on, they, they recorded that. I think I can't remember what the budget was, but it was something really low, like $10,000 or something like that. And they recorded it in a few days and it's basically live. That's what they sounded like live. I actually got to see them uh, when I first moved to LA. It's probably the mid nineties, ninety five or ninety six. They got back together and nice. they played at the Viper Room. And oh I got, wow! And I was stoked because I got to see the original lineup. And and like I never thought that would happen because I sort of missed the boat on that. I was too too young to have seen them the first time. And I was like totally blown away. Like they just they sound like the record live. They were perfect. I mean, a lot of bands did, I suppose, in the late 70s. That was uh, before Pro Tools and Auto-Tune when everyone actually did have to sound good. But but uh, I can only imagine walking into the Troubadour and seeing them play and they're wearing their little suits with their skinny ties and just totally just blazing. Right. Um, I'm sure I'm sure that definitely would have left an impression on everybody. <laughs> it's wild, too. We're, we're coming at the knack from two different perspectives. You as a person who's a big fan of the knack and me who just is digging into them minus my Sharona for the first time ever from what you're saying about them being that good live and how good their album is and and everything like that, that, well, in your opinion, why was this the only hit? Why was my Sharona the only hit for them? What was sure? I mean, you could say that about a ton of bands from that era. I mean, like there's a band called the vapors that had the song turning Japanese, but that, that whole album is great. There's like a lot of those bands that had like the one song that broke through. Right. Um, Nick Gilder is another one. He had the number one song, I believe of 1978 with hot child in the city. He has like four albums where every song is amazing. And you're just like, I, and I can't believe this, this guy was not, more gigantic but he's only known for hot child of the city so i suppose that still happens to this day it's just marketing and whatever connects with people and there's so many variables politics behind the scenes stuff i will say that i've noticed you know we're we're 20 some episodes into this podcast and digging into a lot of one hit wonders there are a lot of one hit wonders that totally should just be one hit wonders when you listen you know you'll hear the the hit and then you'll hear the rest of their catalog and you're like, oh, <laughs> right. I get why they're a one-hit wonder. You know what a great example of that is? We didn't do an episode on this guy yet, but don't ever dig deeper into Mungo Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> Mungo Jerry, for anybody who's listening, uh, who's saying, um, you know, in the summertime, yeah. you don't need to hear any other Mungo Jerry songs. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just been bad luck so far, but it's been quite the opposite of what you're saying. A lot of these people that we've we've covered on here it's just like uh okay i i get why they're a one hit wonder do you think the knack 
And the Vapors, I when you said them, I'm like, okay, were these the kind of bands that kind of led the way for like new wave music? It seems to me like it almost has that feel or were they even considered that at that like 1979 seems early for that. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about, you know, Elvis Costello, there was sort of this whole anti-disco movement coming out and that mater- that sort of reared its head in many different ways. There was the punk thing. There was a the new wave thing. Right. I don't know. I, I, the knack gets lumped in with new wave, but they're really quintessential power pop. Like, you know, I do solo music that people consider power pop, but it's kind of not power pop because my, my solo music is very mellow like Beach Boys, Beatles kind of stuff, but it doesn't really have like heavy guitars or any sort of super fast songs. But the knack I always view as like the prototype for power pop because they did have that Beatles reference, very jangly guitars and all that, but they had so much energy and so much power, you know? There was a bunch of those kind of bands that were guitar based. There was a 2020 and, you know, my, my yellow pills and all, all that stuff that were just sort of around doing that. What was what became power pop and sort of the blueprint for that kind of music. You know, that you've referenced it a couple of times. The, the Beatles influence kind of became a backlash point for them, I guess, from critics and not that critics matter, but maybe it seems like in 1979 it might have. Yeah, well, they, they have that crazy. It's like you said, they got signed really quick. They just had this huge buzz. And then their marketing campaign was pretty crazy, too. You know, they sort of were marketing them as the next Beatles. And there was the whole get the knack. Everyone was running the buttons. And it sort of became like this miniature Beatlemania thing. And then, of course, that created a backlash. Everyone thought it was too commercial and too corporate and not cool. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess even down to the cover of that album, they were saying was a ripoff of... Meet the Beatles? Was it Meet the Beatles? I forget which which album it was, but they said that that even copied the album cover for yeah, uh, just just wearing the suits and the 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 font and the like the drum head. You know, th- there was actually right. like they did a signing. It wasn't even a signing. It was like they basically had the drummer's drum kit on display. I think it was at Tower Records or something, and people just went and took pictures of his drum kit. That's how big they got for a second. <laughs> that the, that the drum kit was famous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And the, the other thing that they got backlash for, which I, I do think is like a very common thing, especially if you listen to music from like the 50s and 60s, it's a very common thing for songs to be about teenage girls. And yeah. I always because I think about like I saw her standing there because uh, we recently did a Paul McCartney tribute show in Pittsburgh. It was like last year. And um, it was just all people from different bands put together into bands to do these Paul McCartney songs. And I, and my band did, I saw her standing there and we were all kind of weird about like, ah, she was just 17 line. Like, should we say that? (laughs) It seems weird, but the way I always looked at it and may, I don't know if I'm wrong or right. What was that? The song was coming from the perspective of a fellow 17 year old. You know, I didn't, I never thought of it as being like, Oh, it's the 35 year old guy singing about a 17 year old. I never looked at it that way yeah i think in the 50s and 60s that was the case but in the 70s there definitely was a lot of questionable stuff like there's another band that's kind of like the knack that's called the records from england and they have a song called tina rama like there were definitely some questionable songs and that that is like you know i'm a super uh, liberal person <laughs> so like yeah, yeah. I, so it is a little problematic the whole my sure thing because he that song was about a 15 year old and he actually was dating her 
Like Sharona is an actual real person. Oh, wow. She's on the cover of the My Sharona single. She's wearing like a tank top with no bra. So it's definitely like sort of sexualizing teenagers. And there's he has a lot of songs that have that kind of vibe, like your, your, your daddy's not home kind of lyrics and stuff that, you know. But there was so much of that stuff in the 70s. I'm not justifying it all. I'm just saying like that that was something I guess that was okay to be saying in songs because even even ABBA had a song called Does Your Mother Know that the guys in the band sang. And it's literally like if you read the lyrics, it's like so cringy. But I suppose in the late 70s, that was like a acceptable topic of lyrics. <laughs> Dude, I, I think of that 80s song. Somebody in our Facebook group had posted it and I hadn't thought about it forever. But I forget who the artist is, but I know there's saxophone in it. And it's like, in the first line, I think it's like, she's only 15 years old. Leave her alone. Oh, yeah. I, I know, you know that song? Yeah, I, yeah. I, it is, it, that's a one-hit wonder, whoever yeah. that guy is. But, if I could go to that song. Yeah, yeah, if I could lift you up and yeah, yeah, take totally. you into... Yeah. Even in the hair metal days, I mean, Winger had a song called 17. She's only yeah. 17, you know, and that yeah, was like, man. that was a song that was on MTV. And like, you just go, wow, that would not, if you did that now, Chris Hansen would bust in. And yeah, for and sure, he'd be, man. He'd be sitting you down. The Knack didn't do it themselves any favors because even after people started calling them out for that, their follow up album was, was called <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But the little girls understand, yeah. and the first the first single from it was "Baby Talks Dirty." So yeah. they weren't taking the, the the criticism. They they were more like, "Oh yeah, well we'll show you." And yeah. and as a result, <laughs> I don't think I don't think that worked. I don't think that worked out for them because you know the next album it did go gold, which man, I'd fucking love to have a gold gold record. Sure, but sure. when your last album was, you know, double platinum and you had the biggest song of the year, that's definitely diminishing returns. And then the album after that, they made one more after they took a, they took a break for exhaustion and internal dissent in the band. Uh, but then they released another album in 1981 called Round Trip. Mm-hmm. And that album only hit number 93 on the Billboard charts. I think it sold 150,000 copies or something. So this band, wow, 1979 to 1981, what a whirlwind. Yeah. <laughs> you know? but then they, they ended up coming back in the, the hair metal years, and they put out an album called Serious Fun in the, in the mid to late 80s, I think. And it was a really great record. It didn't do very well, but it was great. And it had the, the drummer was uh, Pat Torpy, who went on to be in Mr. Big, which was a really big. Right. To be with you. Yeah. They, they sort of had multiple, multiple lives. And then they ended up getting signed to Rhino Records and, and put out albums. I wouldn't say recently, but they had another little mini, mini career. They got uh, the drummer from Missing Persons, Terry Bozio played drums on it and so yeah they they had a little run they put a lot of material <laughs> and they, they had a big resurgence in 1994 thanks to reality bites hi this is chad nicefield and this is justin press we're the host of making waves the ship rock podcast a part of the sound talent media podcast network we're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment every week we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist we'll have lots of special guests along the way so tune in every week your stateroom is available every monday morning so welcome aboard the number you have reached is 100.7 wmms it wasn't just a radio station it was a lifestyle Cleveland is, is a rock and roll city for sure right? get down the wrath of the buzzard 
WMMS The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, PROH Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. You know, I saw that they made their first ever TV appearance or first ever first ever appearance of playing my Sharona live on TV. They did it on Jay Leno, you know. So, yeah, I mean, this band definitely had their moments throughout the years. I think I seriously knew them from those commercials on TV where they would it would be like a hits of the 70s and then it would show that that clip. And I mean, you hear 10 seconds of my Sharona and it's probably stuck in your head forever probably because it's very memorable it's just that that funny little octave like yeah it's it's such a simple thing but it's like it's so catchy and it really sticks in your head and it makes your head kind of bob and you're like yeah (laughs) yeah yeah once again like you said earlier the drums man the yeah that that little riff is catchy but it is is the drums. Uh, well, in- that whole album is a clinic. Like he, he literally, his name is Bruce Gary. He's literally, he's, he's d- dead now, unfortunately, but literally my favorite drummer of all time, uh, wow. especially the drums on that album, not only his playing, but the sound of the drums, like the production is so great. I had a short stint where I worked for Puff Daddy in the late nineties, early two thousands. And he wanted me to sample a bunch of stuff that I thought was cool. And so I ended up sampling all those drums from that. Nice. <laughs> they didn't get used, but I was just like, fuck yeah, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, dude, a badass drummer can make all the difference in the world, you know, because especially in popular music, you'll hear, and don't get me wrong. I love a straight beat, you know, look at like the strokes or bands like that. Like right. you're talking about drummers playing straight beats and the songs are amazing. And it's like, that's part of what is so awesome about it. But then you have somebody like uh, Bill Stevenson from the descendants who just the entire time is just ripping it up and not playing anything the same the whole time. And that is fun to listen to too. So yeah, uh, I, just, you know, I love drummers that play a beat, but they add so much finesse to it. Like, you know, on that get the knack album, there's a song called she's so selfish. And the beat is just do, do, and it's like, Another drummer would play that so straight, but it's all the little ghost notes he's doing and the, the finesse that he has. It's it's the same way that I feel about Roy McDonald, who was the drummer from the Muffs. Okay, yeah. That guy, like, I play in this band called Nerf Herder, and we did a show up in San Francisco, and uh, Kepi Gooley was playing, and he called Roy McDonald to come up on stage to play a song, and it wasn't even his drum kit or anything, and as soon as he sat down and started playing, you go, oh, that's that sound. That's Roy McDonald's. And especially to do that as a drummer, yeah (laughs) to have your own style as a drummer where you can sit down on any drum kit and you can identify that's that drummer that's kind of crazy to do it's it's much easier to do that on an instrument like a guitar where you can do vibrato or or play chords a certain way but to have your own style on drums is kind of crazy (laughs) right and that's what i've always said about ringo is like i i know plenty of people like to talk shit on ringo but like yo ringo if you can sing the drum parts like if the if the drum parts are that memorable, yeah, maybe he wasn't the most technical drummer, but dude, he wrote drum parts on like the greatest songs ever, and you can sing those guitar parts, or you can sing those drum parts just like you could sing Dave Grohl's Nirvana drum parts. You can sing them. Well, it's it's funny you say that. I was just about to mention Dave Grohl because if you're in a studio and someone says play play like Ringo. You, you know exactly what that means. And it's the same right. with Dave Grohl. I can't count how many times I'm doing a project 
and someone says, you know, like a Dave Grohl thing, and everyone knows what that means. You know what I mean? Exactly. So like, that that's how you know you have a style once people are just referencing you in the studio and everyone else knows what that means. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, a thing I saw about the neck, which was just like a crazy little uh, whatever anecdote, is so the singer of the neck, whose name is Doug Figer. It's Figer or Figer. You probably know. I don't. I think it's Figer. That's how I always said it. But who okay, Figer. His brother Jeffrey is an attorney. Was the attorney who represented Doctor Kavorkian. <laughs> oh my God! I didn't know that. Yeah, that's pretty wild. As far as I know, he's helping suffering people. So right. Jeffrey Figer, that that's a good thing you're doing there. Yeah. So, so if you're listening. <laughs> when I first went to LA, I worked at the Virgin Megastore over on Sunset Boulevard in Crescent Heights. I don't know if you know where that is. I was ringing up people and this woman came in and handed me her credit card. She was buying some CDs and I looked at her card and it said Sharona. I can't remember what her last name is, Halperin or something like that. And I go, oh, Sharona. I've never seen anybody with that name before. And I start going, my, 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 Sharona. And she goes, that's me. And, and I'm like, are you serious? And she's like, yeah, I, you know, I get that all the time, whatever. And, and I kind of thought this woman's full of crap or whatever. And as soon as she left, I did some research. And sure enough, that was her. And she's, she's like a pretty gnarly um, real estate agent for like Beverly, like in Beverly Hills, I think. So she's like really successful loaded person like has her names on signs and stuff, but, but that's her. <laughs> wow. I was like, that's Dude, you met, you met Sharona. That I is- met Sharona and, and I met the knack. I got to hang out with them a little bit after the Viper room show. So, and I used to, I used to see Doug Figer all the time at rock and roll Denny's on sunset Boulevard. He used to go in there and eat. Damn. And I, and just, you know, the fanboy in me, I was like, Oh God, that's the guy from the knack eating breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Man, and I can't believe for for how big that song was. Yeah, I don't know anybody named Sharona. I know zero people named that. How, how is that possible? It's a pretty odd name, and you would think after the song. But you know what? Maybe yeah. parents are trying to be nice to their kids because the, the, who, the person named Sharona would just be tortured their entire life. You know, yeah. my, my last name is Dotson, and when I was a kid, there was a car brand called Dotson, and right. there was a jingle and it was like, we are driven or whatever. And kids would just come up to me and sing that to me all the time. And it drove me crazy. So it's uh, it's good that people aren't naming their kids Sharona or else they would be tortured their entire life. That, I guess that makes sense. But I would have thought I would heard at least one Sharona, you know, I don't know. That's true. That's cool that they, they found. And that name, we were talking on this podcast about Tommy Two-Tone, 8675309, yep. how that is just singable. You can just. For some reason, that order of numbers, 8675309, is just the way it flows from your mouth. It's just singable. And if you would change those numbers to something else, it wouldn't be quite so singable. That's totally true. And this word, Sharona, that's just like, you got the shh, you know? It's like shh in a row and a nah. Like how how often do you hear nahs in songs? It's like the perfect name to sing. Like I would have thought they made that name up or something. Right. Just because it's so singable. So. Good point. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and, and Tommy Two-Tone, now that's an example of a one-hit wonder because I loved 8675309 and then I went out and bought that album and, and 
that was the only good song. Dude, dude, we, I mean, we get into this on, on our, me and Chris's episode, but uh, what's so funny about it is we toured together with him. Oh, wow. He opened and closed with that song. He had a sequel to that song. <laughs> he had a Christmas version of that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is a true, true blue one hit wonder. <laughs> no well, doubt. It's cool um, that he's out there still doing it. I could never forget if Tommy Tutone was his name or if that was the name of the band. It's the name of the band. We're talking a little more about my, uh, my Sharona. So Doug Figer passed away in 2010 after a battle with brain and lung cancer. Yeah, uh, that's really sad. But that's cool that you got to meet him and spend a little time with him before he died. Totally. And one thing we we talked about this a little bit, but having context of the year that this song was big, we talked about disco being. I guess that was kind of towards the end of disco. I always think of like by 1980 disco kind of being over, but it really wasn't yet. I don't think, I think it like hung on a little longer than that. Yeah. And then there was all the artists who weren't disco that were making their disco songs like Rod Stewart. And right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so when I looked at what were the other popular songs of 1979, if my Sharona was the most popular, what else was popular? Well, yeah, definitely some disco or stuff that is borderline disco, Ring My Bell, Anita Ward, Hot Stuff, Donna Summer, mm. definitely in there. Uh, but there was also some pretty cool rock stuff. I Want You to Want Me was 1979, which uh-huh. is a pretty badass song. Cheap Trick was another band that got slagged for copying the Beatles, especially when they first really? came out. Really? Yeah, my friend worked at a record store, and when that very first album came out, and someone he said someone came in and returned the record and said, I'll tell you what the cheap trick is. They're ripping off the Beatles. <laughs> Dude, I have never thought that from cheap trick. Maybe I, maybe I'm not hearing the right songs or something, but if, if you heard that in cheap trick, I, yeah, I the, the early stuff for sure. I okay. mean, in the same way I hear it in the knack, you know, just the, the, the composition of the songs and right. the chords and, you know, just even just playing full chords rather than power chords and stuff like that just is very Beatlesy with that style of music. I mean, I guess I say that from a perspective of like everything that I like is influenced by the Beatles. Like if something, if something I listen to isn't in one way or in rock, in rock, and I'm not talking about R and B and hip hop and stuff, but in rock, if something isn't influenced by the Beatles, I'm probably not going to like it because I, I feel like that's, that's the basis that that's, totally. that's where you, you start. Yeah. I mean, couldn't you hear Paul McCartney singing? I want you to want me. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. I suppose. If you and, put and it like that. So, um, Robin Zander did that same thing that Paul McCartney did. You know how Paul McCartney was able to change his voice and he could like do the really rough, like, why don't we do it in the road voice? But he could also uh-huh. do the really sweet, like, let it be voice. Robin Zander did that too. Like he had that rough Alveder Zane voice and then he had the really sweet, I want you to want me voice. And he was like one of those guys that could change his vocal style to suit the song in a, in a very Paul McCartney type of way. All right, you convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> Cheap trick ripped off the Beatles. You convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> no, they referenced them. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's what like we every, like. Everyone did after 1968. Or oh, what? also one of my favorite songs of all time from 1979, which I can't believe wasn't the number one song of 1979. Is "What a Fool Believes." What a fool oh, believes, man. dude. That song. Whew. At one point last year, I was like, hey, I want to learn the bass line to this song. And I sat there for a day and learned that bass line. Mm-hmm. And wow, like talk about both rhythmically and just using the entire neck of the bass and just like all like, wow, like what what a complex 
song. I mean, just totally. all all around. Like, and that's uh, really funny about that that style of seventies music is it was deceivingly complex. Yeah, I had a band briefly called Beer Supply. And we basically were a tribute band and we did all songs like like soft pop 70s songs, which now right. is like it's become hip. There's all these yeah. bands that do it. They call it yacht rock or whatever. But right. but learning those songs because you hear them and they sound very smooth and very simple. But when you start learning the chords and, and all the parts, you're just like, wow, this is like really right. complex. Like even like a song like You're the Inspiration by Chicago it just sounds so schmaltzy and simple but if you pick up a guitar and learn that song it like modulates every couple bars and like the chords are insane and you're just like oh my god how did they make this song? <laughs> dude you know it's really funny you just used the word schmaltzy and someone else i was talking to today used that word and that is the first time i've ever heard that word and now i've heard two people <laughs> say it in one day That's so, so so schmaltzy means like I'm trying to figure out what that word means. Schmaltzy. Yeah, it just means like I don't know, kind of like cheesy. I, I don't okay. know. Okay, all right. I intrinsically know what that word means, but if someone asks me to define it, it's a little harder. Yeah, just like phonetically, just the word itself is like okay, I kind of know what that means, but it's so funny. I've never really heard that before today. Now I've heard it twice in one day. It's, it's the so word funny. of the day. I'm yeah, wrong. man, I learned a new word. That's good. Things happen in threes, so I'm sure you'll hear it one more time. Yeah, I'm going to use I have band practice tonight, so I'm going to use it tonight. I'm going to say, no, man, don't play that. That sounds a little too schmaltzy and see if they know what I mean. (laughs) A couple other songs from that year were like, Do You Think I'm Sexy, Rod Stewart? And uh, Don't Stop Till You Get Enough was that year. Uh, So I don't know. Seems like a pretty solid year for music. And my Sharona was was just the very the very cream of the crop that year, I guess. Going back to what you were saying about why that was the song that broke through. I I was been sort of thinking about that as we're talking and like there aren't really any other songs by the neck that sound that have that riff. I think it was that riff do, 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 and just the feeling of it. Cause the rest of the album, you know, it's produced the same way, but it's, it's more chord and melody based. And that was the one song that was more riff based. So maybe, maybe that was the, the secret sauce on that one that broke through. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it definitely had, we've talked about this on past episodes, every aspect of that song from the drums to you know, the guitars to the bass to the to the words, like even the little the little things he does like going like my and yeah. and you know, like things like that. Every part of that song, every individual thing is catchy on its own. Totally. And you just you put them all together and I think that's how you make a hit song. Like that's the recipe, (laughs) you know, but I, I guess there are songs out there where that's not the case. You have things that are just playing their role and, and and you, if you solo that one thing and you just listen to that, you're like, Oh, I don't really get it. You know? And I feel like that would be the case on a lot of like grunge music. Like just take that grunge guitar from that Alice in Chains song. And, and that's not going to sound very good, but this, uh, everything about it, everything about totally. it. Is, uh, well, I don't want to sound like catchy. a boomer, but, uh, but you know, basically when I'm at home, I, I listen to vinyl only. And I, my sweet spot is definitely from about 1977 till about 1982. That's like my favorite, <laughs> right? <laughs> my favorite era of music listening, not, not only for like music quality, but also like sonic quality. That was the, that was like the peak of the analog era before everything went to digital. And I just love the production, like putting on like a foreigner record, like double vision or something like it just sounds right. so good to me. <laughs> it's probably, it's probably also the peak of the 
producers really thinking about how the songs are going to sound on vinyl, right? Because then right. come night, come 1980. Oh, well, when would cassettes have overtaken the, the record that, that probably already early eighties, right? Early yeah. I mean, was still, tape was still analog. It wasn't until CDs came out when things started getting really crappy sounding. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> The the other thing that I thought was crazy, one more little fact before we, we wrap up here, is that My Sharona was Capitol Records' fastest gold status debut single since I Want to Hold Your Hand. Wow. So it all, com- all comes back around to the Beatles, uh, which is pretty wild. Amazing. Well, anyway, man. Hey, it's been really nice talking about The Knack with you. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome that we were able to talk about The Knack for that long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why? Well, I, I mean, for having one hit, that's that's not bad. And I'm glad. And I'm just glad I got to talk to you in general, man. I feel like I've been we've been in each other's periphery one way or another for a while now, and and I'm glad to talk to you, man. This is really totally. Nice. Well, we'll have to we'll have to talk sometime about uh, other things besides The Knack. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is a great a great start, though, man. A great yeah. start for sure. Hell yeah. Well, thank All you right, for man. having me, and uh, and it was an honor because I. I'm a huge Knack fan, so it was fun to just uh, talk about them for a little bit and give them the props they deserve. And and if anyone's listening to this that doesn't know that much about the Knack, I highly recommend going out and doing a deep dive, on, especially on their first three albums, and you will not be disappointed. It's amazing stuff. Hell yeah, man. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is produced by Matt Kelly as part of the Geekscape Network and hosted by Chris Ophelios of the bands Punchline, Pack, and Another Cheetah. Underneath me, you're hearing Keystoned off Punchline's album Delightfully Pleased. Visit punchline.com to buy your own copy of that album. Let us know your thoughts on the show by emailing us at onehitthunderpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. And tune in next week for another episode of One Hit Thunder. When you see the bridges and bell, Pennsylvania is the home that you know that you can always come back to. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. 
Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. <laughs>